the Textual Therapies podcast with me, Emily Trishenko. The series is about what we know, what we think we know, and what we need to find out about how texts of all kinds interact with good and ill health of all kinds. This episode strays out beyond my comfort zone of written texts to consider the effects on health and well-being of film, specifically Disney movies, which, surprise, surprise, aren't necessarily always the most socially responsible cultural artefacts ever. I talked to Nikki York, a school therapist and social worker, and to Jennifer Fisher, research librarian and medical humanities instructor at Rocky Vista University, Colorado, about their research on Disney, poverty and mental illness. So, Nikki York and Jennifer Fisher, I'm delighted to welcome you to this instalment of the podcast Textual Therapies. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk. Um, We're so glad we could be here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. (laughs) I think the two of you have rather different roots to the research that I've begun to learn a little bit about. Um, perhaps, Den, you could just tell me a bit about how you became interested in, in the research that you've been presenting at this conference. Certainly. So I am a research librarian at my institution. I also teach in the medical humanities department. And so we got involved with a concept called graphic medicine. And that is um, where doctors, patients, and caregivers were starting to create graphic memoirs pretty much to kind of showcase their experience. There are a lot of phenomenal books, really popular ones that I'm sure actually some people might recognize off the bat is things like uh, Hyperbole and a Half, which used to be a web comic. And so if you've seen that meme, clean all the things, or, you know, do that with the little stick character. And so these are like a great way for people to kind of see the experiences that people go through just having diseases or mental health or anything of the sort. And so when I was using this material in my classes to teach in the medical humanities department, I would often have students who would go, well, this is great, you know, seeing this from the clinician's point of view or seeing this comic book that somebody who actually had cancer do, but I saw this great episode on House or I saw, you know, this particular pop culture thing. And so where people really wanted to talk and were interested in things were the things that they see every day on TV, what they, you know, read in um, books and movies and stuff. And so this whole pop culture element, it made me realize how much that shaped what people were seeing, especially when it came to mental health, which was the focus of a lot of my teachings in my class. So I was like, you know, I'm going to try to research this a little bit further, because if so many people are looking at this pop culture aspect, I'm sure that it's relevant, especially, you know, in this day and age. And I got involved because I was working as a school social worker, more about connecting students to services rather than actually doing therapy. And what I was finding is that when I was trying to talk kids into getting services, they would be really resistant and they would talk about how there were characters that they had seen on TV or comic book characters and they either wanted to reject that diagnosis because of how it was being portrayed in pop culture or they didn't want to get help at all because pop culture told you that you didn't need to get help. And I was sitting in my office one day and I just was kind of thinking like, what could I do to change some of the stigma around these things? And I got the crazy idea that I was going to maybe start doing comic book conventions and doing a panel on this. And so I went to Facebook and I said, like, is this just completely done or is this a good idea? And Jen ended up jumping on it because of what she was doing and said, yes, let's do this. And so we started just doing like comic book conventions and then a podcast ourselves. And then Jen was like, well, why don't we turn this into something academic and start doing some of this research? And so we ended up here. 
We're also high school best friends, so (laughs) we should probably lead with that. So we've kind of known each other for, oh God, it's close to 20 years, we're old. Yeah, yeah, and um, she's a medical research librarian, and I'm a social worker, and I never thought that our paths would cross professionally, but then finding ways that we can actually do that and interact with each other so that we can do things like this that are important to us, but we're like getting professional credit for it, which I think is pretty cool too. Yeah, it's wonderful when, these, when when connections start to be forged that you never anticipated, right. especially with friends, close friends. So tell us a little bit about the research that you presented here. What were your methods and what were the main findings? <laughs> the methods were watching a lot of Disney films, so it was really tough <laughs> <Amazing>. research. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did is um, originally we set out to do a uh, mixed method study. We wanted to look at the sociological aspects of this research too, along with the quantitative data. And so out of the 56 animated Disney movies that the Walt Disney Company has made since 1934 to 2016, we used a kind of a basis of inclusion and exclusion criteria to narrow it down to 11 films, where our main focus was we were trying to look at the aspects of poverty, mental illness and see what the themes were because you know early from the start you know you never want to go into something with a confirmation bias but what you can just see is that uh, Walt Disney does not handle the concept of poverty very well and you know the same can be said with mental illness and so we really wanted to see well this is the assumption that we see but what's actually the information out there and so by using that mixed method approach of both taking qualitative kind of essay notes based on a bunch of aspects that were framed on basically three major themes, which were the element of poverty, the element of mental illness, and how relationships seem to be very uh, intercircular into like the conclusions and the absolutions of both of those things. And so just kind of see what our findings were from there. So... I don't know if you want to extrapolate on that or go no, into. I mean, I think I think that's great. And um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that we were also kind of thinking about the data in the same way because we knew that because of what our professions are and all the work that we do, we knew that we both probably were not going to watch all 11 films. And so what we did is we kind of got a baseline together, making sure that we were having the same thoughts about where we wanted to take the data, what data we were really looking at. And we did that by watching uh, Lilo and Stitch simultaneously and sharing notes interactively throughout it. And then once we knew what data we were really looking for, then we took the other 10 films, split them up evenly, did our own research, and then shared it with each other to, again, make sure that were we collecting the data that we really wanted to look at? Were we collecting the same type of data? And if not, why not? So that we could really have this cohesive piece together. And what form exactly did the data take that you were gathering then from the films? Well, we used also from just the the three frames we mentioned with the qualitative stuff, we also took each of the characters' ACE scores, and Nikki will probably be a little bit better than me in explaining what that is since she uses it in clinical capacity, and I do not. Yeah. So, so, so ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, and a lot of people still don't know about it, but it is becoming more common knowledge. And there was this great study that was done, and they looked essentially at... 10 different aspects of childhood trauma, um, anything from parent divorce up to parent incarceration, physical abuse, witnessing physical abuse, things like that. And they found that the higher your ACE score was, so the higher the number of these experiences that you faced as a child, the more likely you were to have worse health outcomes and mental illness. Your risk of suicide was higher. And really, it's anything that's four or above the risk just increases exponentially. And so 
knowing what I know just from doing kind of the field work that I do, especially where I work now in a very rural, impoverished community, I knew that ACE scores were really high and we were facing poverty and mental illness. And so we decided to add that into our data collection too, because we suspected that we might find that some of these characters we were looking at had high ACE scores as well. And that's kind of what we did end up finding out. And I guess to digress, like, well, I guess what we started was with the Horatio Algor myth. And so, you know, for people who aren't familiar with that, that was literally a very popular theme that started in the 19th uh, century up until the Gilded Age. And that was the concept of the self-made man. I mean, Horatio Algor, you know, he wrote many books where most of the time his characters happened to be poor orphans who somehow always, like, made it rich. And they ended up like a hero just through their hard work. So the concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps really solidified itself in the American mythos at this time. And Walt Disney himself was a great proponent that he was a candidate for the Horatio Algo myth. He was a self-made man who came from intense poverty and was able to create this fantastic studio based off of nothing but his hard work. Unfortunately, what he perpetuates in his movies are absolutely not that. Instead of working hard and, you know, really trying to take your own destiny into your own hands, you're wishing upon a star or trying to find a cute, wealthy spouse that's going to solve all your problems. We were trying to give Disney the benefit of the doubt and really just say, come on, man, this can't be what you're actually trying to say. And unfortunately, what it, you know, our research proved is this absolutely yes, he was. Even though he was a self-made man, he didn't want his characters to be self-made men. Instead, he wanted them to just solve their problems by getting into relationships. So from that, you know, using the A scores, we were able to also show that there was a direct correlation that, uh, as you know, Nikki mentioned, that if your A score is four or higher, you have a potential um, propensity for not only mental illness, but for a lot of physical health problems too. And there is a direct correlation with poverty with that. From what we found is that uh, the higher that our characters' ACE scores were, who did also show like diagnostic criteria for a mental illness, they also had a much higher chance of also being impoverished from these studies. So, you know, again, you know, correlation is never causation, so we're not trying to say that poverty equals mental illness, you know, or anything like that, but it was it was actually incredibly st statistically significant what our findings, you know, were with that. So, again, it just shows that whether it's intentional or not, this is a very problematic, you know, theme that Disney's trying to perpetuate to young children. And since Disney has so much influence on how people see the world, it was something that definitely needed to be addressed. So in all 11 films that you looked at, you found that there was this, this resolution of these serious poverty and mental illness-related problems with relationship solutions? So in 10 of the 11 films, we found definite links to relationships being kind of the key point. It wasn't always romantic. It could be a friendship as well, which still puts a lot of pressure on your friends. We had one film, though, where it was left ambiguous. We don't see both characters up until adulthood, so we don't see how that resolution really comes to be. I think that the kind of hint that they're giving is that, yes, this did fix it, but it wasn't directly spelled out. And we really tried throughout all of our data collection and really analyzing everything. We wanted to make sure that we weren't putting assumptions into things. And so even though we suspect that the moral is that this person's you know, mental illness was cured because it was left ambiguous, we did want to know that there was one film where we could not directly say, hey, these two things happened. But in the other 10, yes. And so what's the next step for this research? Oh my goodness, Nikki, what is the next step for this research? Well, we would love to eventually publish this into a paper. We definitely might need to make some more edits. You know, 
the ACE data is fantastic. Our p-value showed that it was incredibly statistically significant, as I mentioned, but it's a very small sample size, and any good statistician is going to pick that apart, because most of the time, in order for it to actually have validity as being statistically significant, you need to have a much larger population than 22 characters. So we might have to kind of reevaluate how we're going to present that data just because that is a little bit of a hurdle. Right. And because our criteria was so narrow of where we had to have an element of mental health and an element of poverty, it excluded so many films. And so we have kind of bounced around the idea of you know, maybe looking at some other films, and uh, a lot of people have asked what has changed over the years. Most of our films were kind of from like the Disney Renaissance to kind of like the late 80s, 90s films, and what has changed is that poverty is not such a big player in the storylines anymore, and so maybe looking at possibly focusing on one aspect possibly just mental health and then our pool is going to expand and we'll be able to look at the ACE scores for those characters and maybe find like correlation between the ACE scores and mental health or I mean there's a lot of places I feel like we could take this and now it's just kind of debating where we want to go. Right. Firstly though like well I love the concept of like the mental health. Um, I uh, you know, and making that broader, when we like when we lose the poverty, we lose so much and we lose like a main point of the Horatio Alger myth that we were trying to, you know, like kind of bring back and kind of talk about and how him changing the mythos of that became problematic, along with another thing that was very popular with uh, Horatio Alger was the concept of the virtuous poor. It is a cute little concept, but it has no basis, absolutely reality. Those are your Robin Hood type characters. Those are the ones that, despite the crippling poverty, they still have upstanding moral character, and they're such good people. They never cheat. They never lie. They're kind. They're intelligent. They're better than the other dredge masses of the poor. And again, that becomes very dangerous because what it's trying to show young children and adults is that you have to be this good in order to be a, uh, you know, considered a person. A hero like Aladdin only steals food. He never, you know, pickpockets gold. This is an example of the virtuous poor, so that we can empathize with him as a hero, because if he was a legitimate person in poverty who was a pickpocket, he's going to have ambiguous morals in reality. And so this is putting a horrible, unrealistic expectation on a person, especially an impoverished person. You have to almost be upheld to the same moral standards of somebody who is not impoverished, somebody from the middle class and that is completely unfair. Otherwise, you don't get to be a person. Robin Hood's case, he, as I said, he literally steals from the rich to feed the poor. I mean, even, um, you know, Nick Wilde, he's an example of these characters that they have to be, yay, good. And so the virtuous poor is, it, again, it's just it's another really problematic theme that you, you see not only in Horatio Aldegar, but you see constantly throughout Disney. It's just the whole concept that you also see, like, all the secondary characters who are impoverished. They're sly and sneaky and unintelligent and boobish and it's almost like you know to show that unless you are this impossible standard then you deserve to be poor and you deserve to be in this impoverished state and that's unfortunately that's an American concept that Disney's not alone in saying that I mean our capitalist culture can be criticized as being horrible for that fact that if you don't pick yourself up by your bootstraps you deserve your circumstances and so I guess that's where like if we take away all of those aspects from this study and just focus on the mental illness I think that we're kind of losing a lot of like the really great like insights that we did find yeah well and the other thing is is that we could even do an analysis where we're comparing characters who just have mental health and not poverty to characters who experience both and how are they portrayed and, and that's a good idea and 
So is your is your hypothesis is the reason that you care about this because you think that children who have not potentially yet developed the critical faculty to to question the messages that are being portrayed in these films are being encouraged to think that, for example, a friendship or a romantic relationship can solve all of life's problems? Do you think that's what's happening? And if so, what can we do beyond telling Disney to educate itself more? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think that that is uh, one of the problems, that we are indoctrinating our children to believe that relationships are kind of the key to getting out of these. And it's not even relationships. It's not about building a community. It's about finding that one person. And, you know, there's a lot of damage that can be done depending on what side of the coin you're on. You know, if, if you are a youth who is experiencing severe depression and you're not getting better, then the message that you're getting is, well, then people don't love me enough because if they loved me enough, then I would get better. Look at all these examples from these movies I'm watching and people are getting better because they have that friend or they fell in love. And so, you know, mom and dad don't love me or, you know, Billy, my best friend doesn't love me. You know, on that side, that's what they're thinking. But on the other side, if I were suicidal and I put all my eggs in a basket and I said, Jen, you are my person, and then I go and attempt suicide, what is that going to do to Jen? That's going to send her a message that she isn't loving me enough. And that is not going to bring us closer together. That is going to push her away. And so unfortunately, like, the conclusion is it's, it's sad to know where to bring this because we could bring it to Disney's door and I doubt anything would change. This is a much larger societal problem, but we need to have these conversations that this is something that is completely romanticized and not reality. And unfortunately, I just think um, accurate representations of both mental illness and poverty are not going to be seen in Disney. And yet it's what's really interesting is with this ACE data that we showed that there was such a huge correlation between characters that had the highest ACE scores also were characters that were impoverished and they all had mental health components. So when those three components were together, they hit the highest ACE score and stuff. And so that was really interesting. And this is a fantasy world. This is Disney. This is where they are whitewashing and sugarcoating everything. And those scores still came through. I mean, so even if they're not addressing the problem, they're there. And so that was incredibly interesting, actually, to just be like, I did not think that the results were going to be that way because this is an an idealized fantasy world. And the fact that they were just so glaringly obvious, even if the problems weren't being addressed... Yeah, and I think one of the questions that we got that kind of surprised me was we did have someone ask, do we really think that children would understand the message if Disney tried to address mental health? And what I think is really important to note is that you know mental health can be diagnosed at a very young age. I believe I heard a statistic where like average age of onset of anxiety for like age of diagnosis is six. And when you think about that, like a six-year-old is going to be able to recognize behaviors that they exhibit within characters within a film they don't need to necessarily have the language but they can recognize that hey like that's what's happening to me I can relate to that character and I think a really simple fix without even having to name the disorders which is a whole other issue about naming but without even having to name it is having a character who's exhibiting these characteristics go to their friend or their loved one and just saying you know, essentially, I need help. And the other person simply saying, I know where you can get help. And that is enough, because then that sends a message to youth that all they need to do is tell someone and someone will know what they can do to get help. And that's going to relieve, I think, a lot of the pressure of it being that one person. 
because then that person can be like, I know where we can get help. And now we're building a community. Now we are building your support network. And that is really how people heal. I would watch the heck out of that Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs> so do you feel that with the young people that you work with, there's the understanding that, that there is someone who can help is, is often lacking and that they don't get to you as early as they might or that there are obstacles in the path? I think that's a really big, complicated question. I think that there is still a lot of stigma around mental health. And when we think about even pop culture as a whole, the messages that we send to people about mental illness is that it is something to be ashamed of. And it is something that if you are mentally ill, you are angry, you are violent, you are dangerous. And and that is statistically, that's just not true. But those are the messages that we send. And that's institutionalized within generations of families. And so if we have a youth that is exhibiting any sign of mental illness, what I find is a lot of parents will be like, they're going to grow out of it, or this isn't a big deal, or, oh yeah, your Uncle Tom was like that, you know, and he's fine. And so there's a lot of stigma around it about the access to care. And so I think not only is it dangerous for the youth that I work with, because it does limit the access to their care, because, you know, again, Disney's saying, you don't need this help, but families have been taught that for generations. And so it really does become this very big barrier to youth and families and even adults reaching out and saying, hey, I need help, because we're not seeing enough people in our pop culture doing that. And pop culture plays such a big role in teaching society about what is okay and what isn't. So do you think that there needs to be more consistent involvement of what we might think of as health humanities research in how healthcare and education and so on are provided in this country and, and more broadly? Well, yeah. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the health humanities departments, unfortunately, are dying across the country. Like, I don't want to be over dramatic, but, you know, at least in large institutions, sometimes, if need be, they're the first ones that are cut. And that's, you know, such a sad reality is that we're trying to teach healthcare providers, clinicians, and everything like that about, you know, the core concepts of empathy and humanistic qualities. And it's almost seen as extracurricular. Like, you know, when we need more involvement, unfortunately, like, people tend to want to pull it. So I would absolutely advocate that, yes, we need more of these programs. What would be the one sentence that you would give them to you know, a real a real skeptic <laughs> who thinks you're not worth the money? <laughs> Story of our life. Uh, you want to keep doctors human. I mean, you know, that's the biggest thing is it's so easy to just turn a patient into into a diagnosis, into a disease. And it's these institutions, these departments that, you know, really do try to keep the humanity in medicine. I think back to the job I previously had. So I was a school social worker, but I actually worked for a hospital and they contracted me out. And I'm not going, I will not put my last employer on blast or anything. I actually loved them and I'm very thankful for the opportunities. But when the hospital began to experience financial difficulties, the first department that was really hit was the social workers. And the thinking of the hospital was that nurses could do what social workers could do, but that social workers couldn't put in an IV line. And I think logically that does make a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't even want to put an IV line in, so that's why we have nurses. But on the other hand, we go through so much training about empathy and the barriers to care and cultural issues that nurses don't get. And so essentially, it's like the hospital coming back and saying, all that really matters is that we 
cross our T's and dot our I's, and it does not matter that we take into consideration what our patients are actually experiencing. And that's kind of scary. Do you think there's also, thinking in particular of the research that you've done here, do you think there's a reluctance on the part of humanities people perhaps to contemplate the idea that, that the arts, even the you know pop cultural arts, could be harmful? There's more kind of interest from the humanities side in showing how it's all beneficial. I think that there's still actually, believe it or not, well, there's stigma about mental health, there's stigma about pop culture. Academics do not want to talk comic books. I mean, this is why I guess like I got interested in the graphic medicine movement and stuff and how all this kind of started is because so many libraries, not just medical ones, not just academic ones, will turn their nose up at the concept of using comic books as an actual source of media. Instead, it's just, it was trash. It's a lower art form. It's, you know, it's not the same quality as a real book. And so, I mean, I think that virtually why like we're coming around like academia is slowly turning its head but why this is kind of a new concept is for a while we were above that we could talk about Kant until like the end of time and we had our great works of literature that was acceptable for our humanities but to talk about Batman's rogue gallery or in, in this case you know even where we are we're here at Frankenstein and stuff like that you know there is so much meat on that story and I'm glad that the people are taking the time to really look at all of the humanistic aspects of it from you know the myth of Prometheus to, you know all of the you know other wonderful aspects but when it comes to pop culture for so many years like it was just kid stuff it was not things that academia wanted to have anything to do with yeah and I think that's one thing that actually really surprised me when I had the idea to maybe start talking about this was the interest that maybe not academia because that's actually not my field but just the interest that people on the ground really had in it that was very surprising to me because I thought well I'm interested in it and it makes sense to me why I'm interested in it because I'm a therapist and I work with students and they talk about what they're seeing and the messages that they're receiving and so like this logically makes sense to me but I did not realize how connected the topic would be to other people and how much it means to people. And every time, I mean, we do talks at comic book conventions and every time we do one, the amount of people that come up to us and just say, thank you for talking about this. And I don't think I was ready for that type of response because I was very self-involved and it was like, well, this is what I'm seeing. And to have so many other people really resonate with our message and now even starting this research and these academics who are really resonating with this message I think for me it's very surprising because this is like a hobby to me and this is so real life to other people absolutely yeah it's, it's wonderful validation or perhaps depressing validation that it, <laughs> that it matters so much to people little call me little call me <laughs> yeah is there anything that surprised you, Jen, about uh, either the process of doing this research or the findings or how people have responded? Oh, well, it was wonderful to see such a positive response. Like, again, like, you know, my big surprise, as I just mentioned, like with the A scores, I was, again, just mm. blown away that, as I said, in a fantasy world that they were still there and that the, the truth was just so glaring. But yeah, no, this has been a, a wonderful reception. Like, truthfully, as I said, because of a little bit of that stigma about, you know, pop culture, I was a little bit afraid that people wouldn't be taking us seriously when we came here. They'd be, oh my gosh, you guys are talking about Disney. How pedantic. And you know, something like that. And so the, the reception has been phenomenal. And again, I think it's because, like, these are beloved characters that are so much a part of our, our own, you know, 
not just our cultural mythos, but like our own like personal journeys and everything like that. And as Nikki put that, I mean, I think that part of the reason why pop culture has so much power, why it shapes the way that people, you know, view the world so much is because we do become so endeared to these characters. I mean, Kyle from South Park, I think, put it beautifully for like um, Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker have influenced more people's lives than, you know, most people who are alive today. And so in some ways, isn't that its own sense of immortality? Aren't these characters in their own actually, you know, worth caring about because you really go through the experience with them. And so they become important to you because, yeah, I, I guess like they, they take on more than a fictional, I guess, uh, you know, persona through that. Yeah, and then we ignore them at our peril. And then we, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. So well, I, oh, and I was going to just say real quick also, like the thing is, is that we do kind of idolize these characters. And I was thinking of Harry Potter and, you know, we kind of like see him as this influential person, but then his creator, J.K. Rowling, who suffered with depression, is very public about it, and we tend to discount her. And she is a real person who has had a real life experience, and we care more about the characters in the world that she created than her own lived experience and how that shaped the stories that she told. Yes, although I suppose at least. I mean, she does have something of a voice, which if she hadn't created those fictions, oh, right. I guess she wouldn't have a yes. yes. <laughs> And actually, she's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that she is becoming a sort of person that people turn to for opinions sometimes, which I find interesting given that, you yeah. know, with many fictional writers, yeah. that doesn't happen. Yeah, no, her and Carrie Fisher, I mention a lot to my students about, like, if you really want to look for, like, a mental health guru about what the experience is like and that there is light at the tunnel, like, look at J.K. Rowling, look at Carrie Fisher, because they were both very public about their own struggles. But again, it's like, oh, well, J.K. Rowling, she, she wrote Harry Potter. And so, yes, yeah, she's wealthy and she does get a bit of voice. Well, so did Carrie Fisher. But I almost feel like sometimes we do try and sweep their experiences under the rug. So I'd like to conclude by asking both of you, what is the question you would next like to answer? Oh, goodness. <laughs> you can take a moment to, to reflect. This is going to be do, easy. You have a burning, do you have a burning question that you'd really just love to know the answer to, whether or not it's you who would do the research? Is there something that you would love to know that relates to uh, This really opened up again for me, like where I would like to go um, a little bit further is, again, we're just going to, pick on Disney because that's just where it seems to be going but the whole concept about how you know forget mental illness and poverty how in a lot of ways like it's Disney is influenced in some ways kind of destroyed the way that we look at healthy like romantic relationships like the concept of happily ever after is just that is a thing that he created like even in the original stories that they're pulling their material from very unlikely was happily ever after actually a thing these original tales were full of tragedy and sacrifice and all this you know other stuff and so now we have this convoluted thought that you have to find the one and he's going to rescue you and if it's not all perfect then the relationship isn't worthwhile and again that's something that I'd really kind of like to look in I guess a little bit more into the sociological aspects of that because there are many a 20 something year old person out there who probably has a very unrealistic view of love and it, maybe it's not all Disney's fault but I'd really like to see maybe what we could pull from research from there that would be fascinating yeah what about I, you I don't know if mine is necessarily so much research based but but my degree is um you know, in social work, but I focused on policy a lot. And I think more of what I would like to see is how do we take what we're doing, whether it be
noticed by the people that matter so that they can really take it to heart and maybe really think about the potential damage that they have done or could continue to do unless they make some changes and change the message that they're sending to our youth. Yeah, how to reach the people that need to be reached is just the great question right? of I, the wall, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much yeah, for both your thanks. contributions. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And, thank uh, you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Textual Therapies. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read my accompanying notes, browse other episodes, or write to me to suggest other people I could talk to in the future, you can do so at my website, trishanko.com. And, well, the point of these podcasts is more than anything else to start or restart or change conversations that help us understand the relevance of texts to health better. So please do also get in touch with me or with Nikki and Jen directly if you're doing work or have experiences that intersect with what we've been talking about today. We hope to hear from you. Thank you.